Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, answer, just if you had to answer. It's great, though. It's true. You know? And, and how, about, how about the video? I had a teacher say to me she didn't believe that a killer whale would eat a seal. I'm like, what can I do with her? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I then will go to Southie, unidentified location, and I'll work for Jerry for eight hours. Jerry, which is, you'd say eight hours, right? A few hours, yep. Okay. <laughs> My name is J Jerry Pilar. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me on my golden hour. <laughs> nope. Blew it. Try again. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four dear nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the fire deer attacked. Only Derek... Master of all four elements could stop those boys. But when Boston needed him most, he vanished into the enchanted Golden Deer Forest. Season four. As I was, so when we're live, just so you know. Yeah. So I'm gonna introduce you. Don't worry, I'll show you how it works. But um, one interesting thing about studio, the studio, is it nonstop. So like you would, Around if you the were, clock. if you were, if you were my age, you would thrive in an environment like this. Yeah. Because, as you know, I know how we work. So just yeah. like, yeah. so listen, I'm gonna preface this. It might be, a, it might be kind of a long intro, but it's important. So I was highly uncomfortable, and I still feel a little weird about running this episode. Because I, I didn't, nobody knows that this has been going on, but I run, I take care of golden deer stuff right now. I'd say probably 10 hours a day. I then will go to Southie, unidentified location, and I'll work for Jerry for eight hours. Jerry, which is, you'd say eight hours, right? A few hours, yep. Okay. <laughs> I, this, this would not be possible if I was not doing the work for Jerry and if Jerry didn't provide the opportunity for me to work for him. Jerry is a one of the top children's authors in the country. Am I am I gassing you when I say that? Do you know, I, what, <laughs> <laughs> you know what that means, gassing? Means you're making it up? It means am I like hyping you up too much? Um well <laughs> he is. He is. And so I do a lot of, I facilitate a lot of the internet activity for Jerry. Um, we do a lot of other great stuff. We make moves together. It's it's a blast. And it was important to me to, to do this because this, as Jerry doesn't really understand, like, how I'm kind of living a double life here with the growth of the show. But it's important to me to understand because I feel like I'm going to be doing big stuff in the city for a while. And so I... I really wanted everyone to know kind of where what was going on when everything started for me. So that's why this is important. So, hey, Big J, thanks for coming, brother. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> Do you want to just tell the audience who you are? Like, what's, what's happened? Jerry Pilata. I grew up in Medford, spent every summer in Situate. I had a wonderful grandmother and 
parents who let us go to Situate on the beach. And uh, so Medford, Situate, when I was a teenager, my parents moved to Situate permanently. I think of Situate as my home. And then, uh, but I live, I raise my kids and my family in Needham. He's a Boston boy. Yeah, I'm Boston all the way, yeah. And I live in Selfie now. And and so I also want to preface this as we start. I normally run it very informal, but given Jerry's audience, because teachers and students and people of a different audience are very dedicated to his books, there could be an instance where I might swear or say something that might not be kid-friendly, so I just want to preface that. I'll tell your mother. We're not going to talk about that on here either. (laughs) So listen, Jerry is like one of the most interesting, I think, success stories that I've ever, ever encountered. And I feel very blessed to be a part of it. You started in insurance, correct? Yeah, when I got out of college, I worked for an insurance company. Well, well, tell them where you went to high school and then where you went to college. I went to Boston College High School, BC High, which I love and have great respect for. And then uh, I went to Georgetown University. And... Like anyone else, uh, I married my college sweetheart, and we had four kids. You know that doesn't happen in a lot about anymore, six right? years. Doesn't happen. No, it's infrequent. It happens in most of the country. <laughs> Just not up here. So then, uh, um, all of a sudden, I had four kids under six years old, and during that time, I got a job, insurance company. So I worked at an insurance company. In- interestingly enough, it was actually my grandfather's insurance company. It was. Um. It was, I guess it was hard work, mentally hard work, you know, at first. But eventually uh, I enjoyed it. I had really nice customers and clients. And about the time I started to be good at it, I left because I was writing books at night. So what was that, like 10 hours? Like I mean, uh, like 10 years of insurance? I, I was there 15 years, but after 10 years I started writing books. So my wife told me to read to my kids. So she went to, my wife went to one of those uh, lectures at an elementary school where the guys, where the guys said, read to your kids, read to your kids, read to your kids. So she used to make me read to the kids. So I don't give you were writing as you were reading. Well, I don't give much advice to people except read to your kids. That's the only advice I give. Read to your kids, read to your kids. You know what I say? What about work hard? Read to your kids and magical things will happen. Well, Well, anyways, so when I was reading to my kids, I thought to myself, yeah, these books are cute, but I could do this. So that's what happened. I was inspired from reading to my kids to write my own books. So I started writing them in traffic, you know, hanging out, you know, whenever I wasn't really working. Still the way you write it today, right, here and there. Yeah, I call myself a scrap writer. I sort of write everywhere, yeah. I sort of think about the books all the time, and I kind of write everywhere, you know. I write on napkins. I write on plane tickets i mean you see this guy's notes is like there's notes scattered everywhere but that's how like real creativity i write on plane tickets i write on phone bills i write in notebooks i write well i used to have a blackberry i used to write some of my books on the blackberry Uh, now the iphone do you like the keyboard on the blackberry yeah it it was a better keyboard i thought a lot of people say that yeah so um i forget where we were but um, so i think what happened is but you're but what you're also not saying is Jerry it's like Jerry is 65 will probably kill me for saying that but no it's okay kids ask me all the time how old I am and teachers get 
weird get weird about it, but I'm like, hey, I'm 65, you know. And he, so when I was 32, I was 32. Mm -hmm. My oldest kid was four, I think. I started writing books, and I didn't know any better. I wrote the book. I designed the book. I hired the illustrator. I went and had the books printed. I did it all myself. Made up the name of my company and what was it? Was it corporate board books? No, it was Peggy Beach books. <laughs> oh, what happened in, to that? It's a long story. Peggy Beach books is Pe what has how I started. Peggy Beach is the the beach in situate. situate. Yes. So, um, now here's my first big break. My first big break was. I used to say there was an invisible hand guiding me because I had a lot of great breaks. But one of my first big breaks was um, I walked, I went to the New England Aquarium with my book, and they liked the book. And at the time, this is hard to imagine. So in 1986, there were no books in the New England Aquarium gift shop. So I was the first book in. So um, the Ocean Alphabet book was my very first book. In the first year, it sold 5,000 copies just in the New England Aquarium gift shop. So for reference, that's the same gift shop that's there. Is that? Now they probably have 1,000 books, uh, hundreds of books. I oh, that know. was the only book that was in the... It was the only book. <laughs> that was the only book in the door. Oh, so it's hard to believe. That's huge. People don't realize this, but the explosion... Can, can you pull it up? The explosion of children's literature is really in the 80s and 90s. So what is 88... 86. Think about it. Before 86. I mean, when did computers? When was like the first Apple computer? 2000, Bef early. Well, I mean, like no. when it was really sold. Yeah. Well, think about it. In 1990, it's really hard to print a color picture book. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Well, it's hard to sell it, too. Well, it's hard to print. So, I mean, if you look at the old Dr. Seuss books, they're blue and black, they're yellow and red, they're green. And white they're no, just two colors no, no you gradients you couldn't print you couldn't print really beautiful books well it was really hard to print really beautiful books back then why printing process wasn't wasn't available you know <clears throat> and then with so when computers came it all sort of changed i think we're going off track no. what you thought would happen no this is no this is how we like to run it i like when it goes like uh, this okay so you think me and you could have a focused conversation? I, you think that's gonna happen? <laughs> no, I forgot something really important. I went to a function at BC High as an alumnus. Okay, when I wrote my first book, I had it. In, uh, I had it, but I hadn't printed it. So this was my first big break. I went to a function at BC High. I went to sit down with my classmates, and there was no seats at my class table. So I ended up sitting over here at another table. It's next to a complete stranger. So when I said, hey, what's your name? He goes, I'm Henry Quinlan. I'm a publisher in Boston. And you were like, let's, let's I'm go. I'm like, I can't believe this. <laughs> and I told him I wrote a book. And he, 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 he was really good about it. He goes, come by my office and talk to me. So when I went to his office. So wait, he, wait one sec. So how long were you holding on to Ocean Alphabet before this meeting? Just a few months. That's still a long time. Like, what, what the? Do I, I was do trying to think thing? of what to do with it. I was trying to like raise the money to print it and uh, whatever I was doing. I, I was working on the design of it or I was rewriting it and checking the facts, whatever I was doing. And uh, I sit next to Henry and Henry says, uh, yeah, come to my office. So I go to his office and the guy was great. He didn't mishandle me in any way. 
he coached me all about publishing, and he told me what to do. He was your age? No, he's like 20 years older than me. And, and so he ran like a pretty prevalent publishing company in Boston? He ran, he ran a publishing company that was mostly law books, but he was getting into other kinds of books. Actually, he did a whole line of trivia books, which was interesting. Remember when trivia was really big? Yeah, Maybe I do. you don't remember because you weren't born. Well, no, no, it's but, on apps now. It's a big yeah, on like... Yeah. So uh, Henry coached me what to do. And uh, so I put together a brochure and went to the New England Aquarium on his advice. And that's that was my first big break that they bought. What do you mean a brochure? I put together a brochure It looked like this. It looked like the book existed, but the book didn't exist. Oh, it was, so it was like a pilot for a book. Yes. I did. <laughs> this guy got so I lucky. The, I had the cover... And I had how you could order them and everything. It looked like it, it looked like you could really the book existed, but it didn't exist. The, so and this is again eighty so eighty six. Yes, eighty six. So I get a big order from the from uh, New England Aquarium, and now I got to print them. So then I had to print them. But and you, you weren't know, at the time. You, you weren't telling time, your family, I, right? You weren't what? you weren't telling your family this was going on, right? Well, I was telling them a little, but uh, I had kids in diapers at the time. You know, I was like trying to hold it all together. So I was working my job. I was doing this at night. And then eventually I got the books printed and I got them in the New England Aquarium. So that was big break number two. First, I meet the guy who coaches me all about publishing. Then I get in the aquarium. So then, we're talking about like luck, how important luck is, you know? Yeah. It's, so it's is it weird when you look back, you're like, wow, the, things could have gone a little differently if I didn't catch these like big wins. No, the third big thing is the the lady who who ran the aquarium gift shop. Um, <clears throat> I feel bad for kids today, but back then every aquarium in the country had their own gift shop manager. Now one place manages the whole country. It's yep. terrible. I know. I I called him. You're either <laughs> in or you're not. So um, what happened is she called all the other gift shops in the country for me or help me. And now all of a sudden I was in all these aquariums all over the country. So this is, I guess you'd call it a success story. So I get in the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago and I get in the National Aquarium in Baltimore and I get in the Chattanooga Aquarium and I get in an aquarium in Texas. So you're fired up. I get the aquarium in Seattle. I'm everywhere and I'm shipping books all over the country out of my cellar in Needham. So I got books in Needham. I got the kids upstairs going crazy and I'm shipping books you know and I'm working my job it's crazy so that many people can handle that type of chaos so then so then I uh I'm lucky I grew up with seven seven of us in my family my house was total chaos crazy shit my house was total chaos growing up I have a friend who was an only child he thought our house was the greatest place on earth he thought our house was Disney World you know so anyways then I wrote a bug book, and then I wrote a bird book. Icky bug alphabet. So I'm wheeling my kids through the Autobahn in Lincoln. You know the Autobahn in Lincoln? You probably went there with you when you were a kid. I'm wheeling oh, my kids, and I go over Drumlin, to the- Drumlin Farm? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I go over to the gift shop, and my kids are like, buy me a toy. And I'm like, no, we're spying. And we're looking oh, you're to, doing see research. If anyone, to see if anyone was writing a bird book. Of course, there were no bird books there for kids. It's hard to believe, isn't it? So it was a different era, though. It's before the explosion of children's literature. So um, this is awesome. So um, off we. Uh, I I decide to write a bird book, 
So then I decide to write a bug book. So I'm working on those at the same time. And I'm doing everything I can to pay the illustrator. I wanted one of the things, one of the moves I made that was very important is I demanded great illustrations. Like I had a publisher who wanted me to do them like in black and white. If I did them in black and white, I, I wouldn't have a career, you know, but I demanded great illustrations. So how much of how much of the formula do you think <coughs> to a children's book is both illustration and the writing? Well, it's really strange. I noticed reading to my kids that they didn't like photographs. They like, the, they like the message more? They like illustrations, which I couldn't figure out why kids would like that. You could have the most beautiful picture, and they didn't really like pictures in books. The kids loved illustrations. So I just thought, okay, I'll, I'm gonna, I have all my books illustrated. So then I tried to find the best illustrators I could find. So... um one of my boys was playing in the backyard and he found a cricket and he picked it up and he goes, Icky. So I stole the title, Icky Bug Outfit. And even till today, huge, 30 years later, huge. Icky Bug Outfit's still my best selling book. More than all the Who Wins? I don't wins. know why. Well, the Who and Wins are smoking hot. You know, the Killer Whale versus Grey White Shark starting to catch up. But, you know, over the last 30 years, the Icky Bug Outfit has sold the most copies. So it was all because my boy, he was two years old, told me bugs are icky. So I stole the title from him. But so. can I be honest with you? I don't. It's it's interesting. Like I don't. I couldn't see you. What if you weren't an author? Like what if it never worked out? It wouldn't. It would be such a travesty. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like what the hell? I don't know. I'm a fortunate guy. I found a career that really fit my my uh, personality your, and my your skills. My skills, yeah. How much did I have to? Did you have to foster that, like being able to write? Uh, I find writing really hard. I do too. Really hard, really. I think it's hard for everybody, you know, to write something that someone else would want to read. But, it, but it's hard to sit down. I feel, yeah. you know, for us. Yeah, when you're ADD, it's really hard to sit down. You know, I have a friend I call ADD cubed. Shout out to Mary. She Alice. calls me. <laughs> <laughs> she calls me ADD squared. You're just regular ADD, I think. Well, I'm ADHD. So anyways. The thing is, you know what's going to be interesting? And when we'll play this back, we'll speed it up, and you'll see how much we're fidgeting and doing other stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, so I'll tell you this. This was another big break. Remember I said the invisible hand was guiding me along the way? All right. So I did a ocean book, and it's nonfiction. It's true. Everything in the book is true about the fish. And then, you know, then I did birds, nonfiction, and I did bugs, nonfiction. Now, I don't know this in my head. I don't know consciously that I'm writing thematic nonfiction alphabet books. Okay? There, there were no other alphabet now, books. Now, this is the before time, right? the internet, so nobody can go online and look up some bird and look up some. They can go to an encyclopedia or something. So I, saw, I sort of look at them as mini encyclopedias, right? And they're fun. But I'm doing nonfiction, so this is my next big break. The country around 1990 switches to nonfiction. Like in the old days, there was Mother Goose and there was uh, the Smurfs and there was, you know, um, fairy tales, really. So the country switches around 1990 from fairy tales to nonfiction literature. So I, I had a line of nonfiction books. So my books took off the 90s. What they call, oh, 
I've never discussed this with you. It was called the whole language movement. Now there's people that hate the whole language movement and there's people that love it. What does that mean, whole language? It meant that, it, mean, it means a lot of things, but mostly it meant they stopped using um, textbooks and they started using children's literature to teach certain things. Like if you were going to teach fractions, you could use a textbook and it would probably be, you know, boring, you know, or you could take a children's literature book about fractions and you could teach with that. So what happened is that's what I mean about the explosion of literature. It all happened in the nineties. And, um, <clears throat> instead of like one or two dinosaur books, there was thousand dinosaur books. Instead you were on that early two, though, right? What? Let's go off a bit before all that. No, I kept doing nonfiction. I did bugs, birds, flowers, reptiles. So what I kept going. What Jerry's getting into is for a while he was referred to as the alphabet man. Yes. I was. I my first twenty five books were all nonfiction alphabet books. Yes. Hits. Massive hits. Yes. They sold really well. And Jerry is extremely humble. He's like very humble. And one thing I totally learned from you is like no matter what. Like, you just got to keep your head down and keep working, you know? Like, you that's one thing you haven't really commented on, on how it's grown for you, is, like, just how important the hard work was. Right. Well, I didn't get to that yet. Sorry. So part of the whole language movement was to visit, to, to have an author visit your school was really uh, something. So maybe... Authors didn't visit schools that much, say, prior to 1980. I'm sure they did, but not a lot. All of a sudden, in the 90s, everybody wants authors in their school. So I now had a second career. I could go and speak at schools. Constantly touring. Yeah. So I started touring, for lack of a better term, like a maniac. I was doing, I was, school. the school year is 180 days. I was touring 150 days a year. He was at it, man. Like, yeah, I was touring. He still does it. Yeah. He's still crazy. I know. When I look back, I think I've been to 4,000 elementary schools. You know, like K-5 is really my thing. Sometimes I speak to 7th and 8th graders, sometimes high school. Obviously, I've spoken at conferences with teachers and colleges, but really at kindergarten through 5th grade is, is my thing. Like, I woke up one day and just said, this is my thing, you know, like, if someone says, well, why don't you speak to 7th and 8th graders? I'm like, well, it's not really my thing. You it's, know? it's also interesting. I didn't know you before it all started, but you you relate. There's a 65-year-old man. He relates to kids like effortless, effortlessly. You think that's just like a, a skill you have or something you developed? Well, I grew up with 71st cousins. Of a, oh, from motion cousins show motion cousins. Where is it? Um, I uh, I did write a book about all my cousins, yeah. Hey, if you're in the audience, is one thing we didn't say. Most of you are 18 to 26-year-old males from Boston. But if you got kids at a young age, let's start them reading on the, the JP books. Well, thank you. So, um, <laughs> sure, big J. I forget where we. I forget where we were, but I was saying um, you relate to kids very well. All right, so I start touring the country, and uh, I had a career touring the country giving speeches. And I would say that when I first started, it was challenging. Eventually, I learned how to talk to an audience. Oh, you I developed have to thank, it. Yeah. 
And, and teachers used to comment, why don't you talk about this? Why don't you talk about that? Why don't you do this? And eventually I kept changing my show, changing my show until it was really acceptable in the schools. You adapted. Yeah, I adapted. So I have to thank this te- this principal down in uh, Richmond, Virginia once. He said to me, uh, if, my, if these kids don't behave, it's your fault. And I was, I was thinking, you kidding me? I thought the guy was a jerk. Are you kidding me? I didn't say that to him, but I was thinking in my head. And he goes, you have to learn to control an audience. So they'll what? behave if you control them. If you don't control them, it's your fault. Yeah, he was but basically that... saying, I, was thought, I, I used to think the teachers should control the kids, but now I learned you can control them if you have a great show. You can control the kids. Well, yeah, you, you go up and down with the energy at certain points. Right. And you learn how to do it. I saw other speakers that really... You know, struggle with it. No, that really taught me some tricks of how to handle the crowd, you know? So, well, when you talk, you just keep it moving, you know? Right. Like, kids' attention spans are only so high. So, Jerry's just like, keep switching the sl- side, new fact. Hey, kids. I know my show has 250 slides in one hour. That's a lot. And it's then, like, and the new, and the new one's moving. like 100, right? It, no, it's like, it's 250. No, the new one. Oh, you talking, I'm talking about the new one we made. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So 300. Whoa. Yeah. But he, there's a little line he frequently says, like, hey, kids, hey, kids, hey, kids. And it grabs them. They're like this. You know, he's, yeah. a, he's a master. I don't, know, I don't know where I learned that, but I probably learned it from doing it. Have you noticed you do it? Yeah. You know? So they are kids, though. Well, you kill it. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I watched some authors who wrote beautiful books and never did anything, and their books didn't sell very well. And I watched other authors who wrote beautiful books, never did anything. And I decided I would treat my job like a regular job. Like, I'm going to get up every day, and I'm going to work from sunup to sundown on my career. So I did that. I, if I wasn't... No, you still do that. Yeah. <laughs> if I wasn't... Um, visiting a school i was working on i was either talking to illustrators or shipping books talking to publishers signing books shipping books whatever so i decided why i would treat my career like a regular job and that's what i did so going way back 30 years um i had read biographies um like i read a biography of jay leno that he did over 300 stand-ups one night one year and i read machine the rock band The Police did 350 concerts in one year. And I thought to myself, that's what it takes. I'm going to have to get out there and visit as many schools as I can. I once met an author who told me she was exhausted, exhausted from visiting so many schools. I go, how many did you visit? She goes, 15. And I had done 150 that year. You're like, lady, so stop what can I say? What can I say to her? I can't say anything. I have to bite my tongue at lunch and pretend I didn't do 150 schools that yet. <laughs> Swag. She's, she's telling me how exhausted she was from visiting <laughs> right, 15 lady, schools. Lady, you serious? So th- that's I'm not like, making fun of her. But no, it's like I know it's fine. It's, it's fine. I realize that novelists have to stay home and write. I realize that. Well, so if you're a novelist, you can't really be me. You know. Well, I don't think I could. I don't think I could work with any other author besides you man honestly there's, a, there's, there's a, no uh, other it's very important and i'll talk for jerry for a sec but there's no other author like him because 
he runs his career like of like a very fast-paced business. Everything moves very fast. And when you traditionally think of authors and you think of people in creative positions, you think of people who take their time, develop their ideas and adapt. But Jerry is always on the go, man. And it's well, inspiring, man. Like he's I, 65. I still, I still think, though, that I have to, uh, let, when we're writing the books, though, it's we're working hard. You know, like, that's the hardest part. You know, writing the books and making them fun to read and making them full of facts and information and trying to appeal to kids. It's that's really hard work. You, you, don't, know? you don't think you have it down to a formula by now, though, because you have some. I don't, know, I don't know. I don't really think I have a formula, but you know, I want to break the formula. You know what I mean? Try new stuff. Yeah. You know, you also so, a big ideas guy. Jerry's got a gazillion ideas at once. Um. So, hey, I was can, can we stop real quick? Yeah, it's pretty easy, right? This is fun. You like it? Yeah, great. All right, keep going. I don't know. I don't know where we were. <laughs> you you were talking about you just. I was told you breaks I had. I met the guy in publishing. I got in the Wing of the Aquarium. I got in all the national parks around the country. Touring like a maniac. Touring like a maniac. Then I met my pub, my first publisher by accident. So, I was doing too much, and I had it pull it back and I ended up giving my books over to Childsbridge Publishing in Watertown. And they were a bigger publishing company at the time. Right. And they brought my sales from a hundred thousand books to a million books in one year. Whoa. And that was a big break. You know, Wait, Charles Bridge is in over. Charles it's in Charlestown? It's in Watertown. And and what's the name of the, the press in Davis Square? Sleeping? Candlewick? Candlewick. I don't I'm not with Candlewick. Okay. You know? So so how does I was with Childsbridge. I was with Childsbridge. I haven't finished. Continue. Well, I, you can ask me anything you want, but mm-hmm. I, um, I was with Childsbridge, and then there's a company in America called Scholastic, biggest children's publisher in the world, and Dom. Scholastic to me is like. I hate to do sports analogies, but that's like being in the NFL, being with Scholastic. So it's like being Childsbridge with the Patriots. Like, <laughs> it's like being with Belichick. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we shouldn't say that because most of the country doesn't like him. <laughs> it's a Boston show. It's all right. So um, um, Scholastic came calling and they're like, come down in New York. And you, you were pumped. Yeah. It took me a long time to get a phone call like that. How, how deep were you into the career at this point? Start when you're 32. When's the <clears throat> Let's see. No, it's like, you know, maybe 15 years into my career. That's amazing, man. Honestly, it's it's just it's so after the testament. Well, the testament is just like you're not you're not describing it in like really fluid detail. Like Jerry was had a full family at home, and he was just pack his SUV up with books and go from school to school to school, giving an energetic performance every time, never complaining, selling books, just hustle, man. Yeah. I love I didn't you. Get... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Scholastic called me up and, uh, I went down there and, uh, they were like, well, what do you got? Well, what do you got? And then, that was a very interesting story that I was, I was at another, I'm trying to think of the word, 
cutting-edge event in publishing. What happened is... It comes in waves, right? I don't know. What happened is scholastic clubs, which sell books in classrooms all over the country, okay? I mean, that's the ultimate goal. A guy like me, get your books in every classroom in the country. That would be the deal. Okay. So the clubs, so, j- just can you clarify, the clubs are like, it's like a catalog for teachers to right. buy books for the curriculum. it's a catalog for teachers, right. Okay, so it's been around since 1928, all right? And uh, they're the biggest, I think the biggest publisher of children's books in the world. Okay, so they call me up. And they say, this is what they used to do. All the old publishers, you know, Simon & Schuster, Little Brown, Harcourt, all the old publishers used to take their excess stock and give it to Scholastic and they would put it in their catalogs cheap to sell to kids. So that's what they used to do. They used to buy excess stock from all these publishers all over the country. They did that for years. So a new team came in and the new team said, um, we're going to be our own publisher. We're not buying stuff from everyone else anymore. So like I was right there and they said to me, do you want to be on the team? So uh, it took me three seconds to say, yes, I'm in. Just like that. I'm just, you know, like maybe the average guy would have said, let me talk to my mother. Uh, let me call my agent. Uh, it, it, it speaks it to what's like, going on. It was you like, say yes. You boom. always say yes like I this. I was like, boom, let's do it. So um, I ended up becoming a Scholastic Book Club author. So... I still was I was still doing books with Childsbridge, Alphabet Books, Sleeping and, Bear. and Math Books. By the way, I missed a whole section of my career. Um, so um, I was I was with Scholastic, and in my back pocket at the meeting, I had the Hershey Fraction book. And because of uh, a friend of mine who wrote M&M Candy Counting Book, I ended up through all sorts of weird stuff, ending up with the Hershey Fraction book. So I, I showed the Hershey Fraction book to Scholastic, and they're like, we'll take it. So then they go, well, what else are you doing? And I said, I'm doing this. And they go, we'll take it. And I end up selling a lot of titles, and I, I started a career at the Scholastic book clubs, reading clubs. Well, yeah, you just they just kept asking for new ideas, and I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, We have the resources to publish this and print this. Let's do it, right? But I don't want to make it sound like they bought everything I had because there was plenty of books I thought of that they they said no we don't want that you know like no we don't want that you know and you've that, had and you've had books had underperform re- too right yeah I've had plenty of rejections and stuff that failed you know did you and, just become immune to it at a certain point you're like okay I mean I no it still hurts yeah <laughs> <laughs> it still hurts when you write something and you put your heart and soul in it and nobody likes it you know like. I wrote a vegetable alphabet book and it doesn't sell very well. And I wrote a boat alphabet book. <laughs> I wrote a boat alphabet book and it got the unbelievable reviews all over the place across the board and it didn't sell at all. And it's a really beautiful book. Well, what matters more to you? It, it's selling big or just people enjoying it? Honestly. I know. Well, we all want, we all want them to sell big, you know, cause then you can do other books. If your book stops selling, then you're kind of like stuck. Well, yeah, and you're, so and your you're books, also you're entrepreneurial. Sell, you know, it's like as an author, you're very entrepreneurial, and it's if, like if you, you're putting if, it on the line consistently. Yeah, if your books sell, then you know you can do more books. 
Or you can do books they normally wouldn't let you publish, you know? I wrote a book, Crab Alphabet. If my other books weren't selling so well, I don't think they'd let me do a crab book, you know? And I did a book, Eyeball. Why, it's just not a popular creature? Yeah, it's not a popular creature, you know? When you think of kids, butterflies, dolphins, tigers, right? You don't really think of crabs, you know? So, um... Except Jerry's very knowledgeable on crabs because, like, he grew up just playing with them at the beach. Yeah. Anyways, I skipped a part of my career. So what happened is... uh, I'm the worst interviewer ever. (laughs) No, I skipped a part. It's my fault. Um, When I was touring the country, teachers would tell me what's going on. You know, they'd say, butterflies are part of the curriculum. So I wrote a butterfly book. And then they'd say, we don't have any children's books on math. And I'm like, really? And like, no, we don't have any children's books on math. We have textbooks. We have worksheets. We don't have any children's books. That's another thing you told me. You you like you find open space. You find open space, right? So that's what happened. I did write books on the military. Wait, one sec, just elaborate. Open space. He means like he find. He was gauging what the market needed, and like what he could create. I did write books on the um, military, but the. At the time, there's no military books in the United States. You know, it's hard to imagine. There was no book on the Marines. It's like one of the biggest brands in America, the Marines, right? There's like the Yankees, Hershey Chocolate, the Red Sox. Patriots, and Patriots. The, and then there's the Marines, right? So, um, Did you have to pass through patents and stuff to do that? No. No licensing, none of that? No. It's owned by the people. We're the taxpayers. We own it. So then, uh, they must have a trademark though, right? The U.S. Marine logo and it's owned by the taxpayers. You know, you can use it. You know, so um, we had the books checked by the Pentagon. So so you did have to run it by some people. They didn't sell very well, but no one else was doing them. You know, so uh, about ten years ago, nine years ago, I thought of this idea: uh, who would win if a killer whale fought a great white shark? And I wanted to do it. I'll tell the I'll tell the public this because it's it's a pretty good publishing story. I wanted to do a picture book like that big, like this, like this. I wanted to do a picture book, killer whale versus great white shark, and what would Hard happen? Hardcover. Yeah, and what would happen if they fight? So um, I showed it around New York, and they they said um, nobody's making money in picture books right now. We want you to do a reader. But I didn't know what a reader was. That's what this is. A reader's like this. So a little kid, he's in first grade, second grade, he'll pick up a book like this. Too heavy? No, he'll pick it up. But a kid in fourth grade will not be seen around the school with a picture book. But he will this Oh, it's book. like a... It's a little, yes. Oh, I didn't even... I don't yeah. get that. All right? So the kid... This structure... You're saying like this structure of book is like cool for kids, but that's like too immature for This is for like baby. Kids. This is a baby book. So a kid in fourth grade... The kids know that. Fifth grade won't be seen with this book. Wow. He'll read it privately and like it, but he won't walk around like this. Like, you know, wow. Like football, right? The, the psychology behind the children's stuff is unbelievable. So... But they like this because it looks like a chapter book, but it's not. It's a picture book. But they call these readers. They're like little readers. So they're like a step between like a really simple book that goes one, two, three, four, like a really simple book and a picture book. I mean, I'm sorry, and a chapter book. 
it's like a step between a picture book. I, I messed up. It's a step between a picture book and a chapter book. Mm -hmm. So right here is this picture book, and over here is Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So in between. Harry Potter is the standard, right? That's like the highest you would reach in children's literature. I don't know. Goosebumps sold the most copies, four hundred million. More than Harry Potter? No I think way! So. No I think way! So. I think Goosebumps holds a record, four hundred million books Jeez. sold. I'm, I'm gonna look it don't up. look it up right now. That's fine. We, we can do this on podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think I think it, he holds the record for the most books ever sold. That's R.L. Stein, right? Yeah. The thing is, Jerry is like, there's no, you created a niche for yourself. Harry Potter has estimated sales of $7.7 .7 billion last year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's probably movies and stuff too. <clears throat> wow. I'm pretty sure Goosebumps is number one all time. Children's. Well, how many copies are there total? 100? What? How many total Goosebumps installations are there? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. So anyways, you so see my point? The, well, the new series, Jerry's kid, new series. A kid will carry this around, but he won't carry it. I get it. Yeah, all right. So at first, I didn't want to do it. I was a picture book guy. Mm -hmm. And they were like, this like really hurt my brain. It was like I had to switch, I had to switch how I think, right? It, does, it sounds stupid, but it was like. You to adapt again. It was like, um, I don't know. It was a brain twister. So anyways, um, I never had photographs. But they let us use photographs. Wait, so can and you can you explain the the difference between an illustration and a photograph? No, it's an illustration is hand drawn. So he's saying like this page, on well th nowadays that's, that's a photograph, correct? Nowadays, this yeah, it's a photograph. Nowadays, this docked his photos. There's some photos. I don't know, right? But then the illustrator and then the covers illustrations. They might be doctored. That's photos, an illustration though. too. Yeah, they might be doctored photos. You know what I mean? Um, where nowadays you can't even tell. You know, these are illustrations. No one ever photographed them like that. You know? Wait, yeah. So who? Um, so whose decision was it? Was it the publishing company or your or your decision to have a cross a crossover between images and illustrations? Um, they told me. Was it more? They engaging? told me they wanted eight photos in each book. Why? I don't know. You said, okay, fine. Okay, fine. We'll use eight photos in each book. And they said the rest can be illustrations. It probably had to do with cost, getting permission to use photographs. I have no idea. So anyways, um, we started doing these books. and Well, tell them, how you, tell them how you came up with the idea. So the idea was how how to come up with the idea. It's crazy. <laughs> so mind you, this series, this Who Would Win series is like has sold 10 million copies yeah <laughs> like that's real. really smoking hot yeah really. that's really moving bucks and and you guys also got to think like everyone reads online now on kindle or apple books teachers are still like totally consuming these books because the product is amazing for kids he's incentivizing like tons of kids to read yeah they i call them my reluctant reader i'm jerry's cheerleader I call them my reluctant reader boy books. That's what I call them. So, I'm a I'm a very lucky guy that they have so have been accepted so well. Well, what's interesting is that you you you're like at the point, the apex of your career at 65. Most people it'd be at like 40, right? Normally, for a children's I don't author. Know. 
It's awesome, though. Oh, I never really thought. Keeps it moving, brother. So, yeah, explain how this happened. It's hilarious. How it really happened? I was gone for two weeks visiting schools, and I landed at Boston, at Logan Airport, at 1 p.m. My family was supposed to come and get me, and they lived 11 miles away, and they came in four hours. They left the You were PO'd, man. For four hours. <laughs> so during the four hours, for the first hour, it was really you bad. Pissed, yeah. Really bad. <laughs> and then I just sat down on a bench, and I said, I'll, I'll try to make constructive. Be productive. I'll try to be I'll try to do something with my time and I won't be mad. And I sat there and um they picked me up four hours later. But during that time I thought of Killer Whale versus Great White Shark. I sat down and I just in my head thought of the whole book. Mammal, fish. Mammal, fish, mm-hmm. um, you know. Can I be horizontal honest with you? tail, vertical tail. Again, breathes air, doesn't breathe air. Students, teachers, listening to this, I'm gonna use one bad word, but people were so, probably so pissed when they were like, "Why did I not think of that?" Because every kid wants to know who wins in a fight—a lion or a tiger. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so yeah. far, so good. Things are great. And so, did you think? And oh yeah, how did you initially pitch the series? I mocked up three covers like this. I mocked up three covers like that. And, it, and explain the yellow I, and red I text. I didn't write the books, but I mocked up the three covers, and I I showed it to them. I go, "Do you want this series?" And it said, "Kill Will, Great White Shark, Lion versus Tiger, Polar Bear, Grizzly Bear," and uh, it actually got rejected initially. And later on, they picked it up. You oh, know, oh! It was actually rejected by three different publishers. Scholastic rejected it initially. Yeah. So how did you repitch it? Um, the head lady's really smart, and she always liked the whole concept, and uh, had great faith in me. And uh, what after, I'm saying is, after, after the second time, what did you say that that was more convincing than the first? Pitch? Well, the people that rejected it got fired. Okay, yeah. So then there was like a new team in, and the new team was like, hey, let's get that guy back in here. You know, it, it happened like that. You well, know? So how long did you have the idea again before it went to print? When, in the, the pilot, the draft. What? How long did you have the draft before it went to print? It actually went to print, you know. Um, well, I think it was eight months before they called me back, and then it went to print like maybe less than a year later so you you're per, during this 8 months you're persisting like you're yeah i was working on it i was working on oh, it oh i mean but like are you are you consistently like hitting up the publishing company saying hey what do you think hey what do you think hey what do you think sort of yeah you know i, I, I was I, working with the illustrator i didn't have an advance or anything so i was probably using my own money getting the illustrator going getting him excited and, you know and you've done a okay. lot like that like a lot of self there's 20 there's now 21 who would win books yeah. Hot, man. Yeah. And and you've done a We've lot. We've done one every six months. It's kind of hard to do one faster than that. That's like really pushing it. And some of the ideas for the books are hilarious. Some of the ideas you get. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Green ants, army ants. 500,000 green ants against 500,000 500, army, army ants. ants. Yeah. Uh, um, what was I going to say? I, oh, yeah. I think... Can you just briefly 
in a, in a synopsis, tell someone if there's someone listening that might be interested in in writing a book, how to go about in it. Writing a book and writing and selling a children's book, it's hard, right? I would say, um, uh, I have a friend who says I don't write books; I finish them. And at first, I thought it was goofy. Then I thought about it. He's right. A lot of people write books, but they never finish them. So you got to finish it. And after you finish it, send it in. To My who? own opinion to is who? send it in to the publishers, to the uh, children's book editor. So, yeah, but this when, when you I send think. it, is it with images? Is it just the text? Ideally, just the text. Ideally, yeah. So Obviously, some people draw their own stuff. But I personally feel that if you have a really creative idea, the publishers will buy it. You know how they say, well, it's really hard. Yeah, it is hard. It's really hard to be creative. So my own opinion is if you have a really creative idea, someone will buy it. That's what I think. If you have like a run-of-the-mill, same story that everyone has told forever, then it's really hard to get published. So um, that's what I think. So what would I do? I would write the book. I would finish it. Well, so, and then I would submit it. So Yeah, but what I'm saying is who would you submit to? Scholastic. I would submit to, I'd look up, I'd go to uh, a bookstore, like Barnes & Noble, let's say. I'd go to a bookstore, and I'd look around at well, what you think your book looks like. That's one thing we should talk about after this is Barnes & Noble and the shift in selling books, how much has yeah. changed. I would look, I would, I'd look around and find what you think your book looks like, and then see who the publisher is, and then write to them. Or, you know, that's what I would do. I'd look at other children's books, find out. So just look online, find so out, just who, like the selling edit, anything find else. out who the ch- children's editor is, and and send it in. So it's just like anything else, you just go and pitch it, right? You can't really call them. You could send it, email, send it, you send, know, send. But I will tell you this: I once went to. I was trying to get my books in McDonald's and the Happy Meals, and I went. That's to a the, great idea. I didn't know that. Yeah, I went and met the guy. Who's in charge of that? Of Happy Meals? Yeah. <laughs> no way. He was great. He, the guy was great. But I learned something that day that I'll never forget. What? Behind him was 500 unopened packages. So, in other words, 500 people put their heart and soul into something and mailed it to him, and he never even opened it up. But, but you showed up, right? I showed up in person, yeah. And that's another thing I learned from you, man. I'm telling you, after two summers ago, I've been doing it for everything. You just show up. I don't know if, where I learned that. <laughs> it's awesome. Insurance, probably. So, um, 500 packages unopened. Wow. And, and Anyways, he was great. Wait, so you he wanted to put what book in, in the into Happy Meals? At the time, I was trying to put the outfit books in the Happy Meals. I mean, if I could, I'd put the Who Would Win books would, in there. Would that be Would that be acceptable now, given like the the health crisis a, with McDonald's and stuff? It would totally be acceptable, you know. I think. Would you feel bad about that? No, I'd feel bad if they had to get a little plastic toy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but but, but you book. have kids like stuffing their you face with a Big Mac, reading your books. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be great. It'd be get them all reading. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You know. So yeah, can you talk about? Jerry lived through the internet boom and boost. So he has told me a bunch. Well, like, I'll tell you this. But when the I Barnes first, and Noble Board no, is, Listen, when I first started, when I first started, there were 2,000 independent children's bookstores in America. 
2,000. And they're all gone. They're almost all gone. What do you mean? Like Henry Bear Park? Is that an independent? No, I, I mean like Yellow Brick Road, the White Rabbit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I could go around the country and I remember the names of a lot of them. So my books were, were all over the place in these little bookstores in America. And they're all gone. So that happened. So then, you know, instead of... That happened when? When the internet took yes. off? Which is what, early 2000s? It happened from, well, Barnes & Noble moved in first, then the internet moved in, you know? Th- did that worry you at the time? Like, oh my, how am I going to sell my books? What's going no, on? No, my books were selling great. So I'm, I'm trying to think of how it... There just weren't as many bookstores, you know? It actually helped me because I was selling books out of my trunk. So if I went to rural America, there was no bookstores, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm the only one in town with books. So it was kind of good for me personally. Huge. <laughs> it was good for me personally, but, you know, it wasn't good for the people in those towns, you know? They had no bookstores, you know? So, uh, of course, now you could get everything online. And um, everything is online. You know, by the way, you know what happened? And I don't know how this affects me. Probably I have less sales from it. But in the old days... <clears throat> If you had a book and your kids grew up, what do you do with that book? And, you know, you used to just bring it to the dump. Really? Or donate it to a church or something? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you can sell it online. Resell you know, like, it. So the, there's a whole big secondary market that never existed before. The but how that really affects me, I don't know. But you can buy my books, use books online, you know? No, you can't. Anyone listen, you can. You guys can buy from the website. <laughs> uh, so additionally, but what you had said is like 2004, like Barnes & Noble was popping and borders just fell off the face of the planet. Yeah, one of them embraced the internet and the other one didn't. That's true. Barnes & Noble started selling online and thing didn't. Borders didn't. Borders didn't believe in ebooks at all. So they, they, I forget what they did, but they didn't embrace ebooks, you know? So supposedly these big authors say the big novelists, seventy percent of their book sales are ebooks. Children's books has never caught on, which is kind of a weird thing. What's well, you gotta teach kids physically probably, right? With I don't know, book. it just hasn't caught on. People aren't buying ebooks for children like they are adult books, you know. I'm not an expert at it, but I could tell you that I know one of my books, my book on Fenway Park. Sold fifteen thousand hardcovers in eight ebooks. No way. Eight. Well, you sold, did you sell it at Fenway? Did you? No, you, I'm not really involved in selling that at Fenway. You know, I should, but I'm not. You know, I've tried to get there. Off air. I've tried to get it. I've tried to get it in there. Yeah, we'll figure it out. It's fine. So, so uh, I think. From a success point so far, you've been very transparent about how it happened. The one thing that's that I've learned from you is that, like, you say yes to everything. Well, that's not really true. <laughs> no, I would try anything to promote the books. No, but but is that you, what you mean? No, what I'm saying is you don't overthink stuff. You know, you go, which. How how much of your biggest wins do you think are, are is based on impulse? 
for instance, can I just tell you a quick story? <laughs> yeah. I started this show on Impulse. It's now the biggest in Boston. Yeah. Totally on Impulse. One day I was like, okay, we got to start something. We got to get the podcast started, right? Yeah. Started it in a place. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have been running it. You know what I'm saying? We ran it. Dealt with the repercussions and kept it moving. Do you think there's a, a lot of that looking back on your storied career? Well, I was always close to the kids, so I could tell what the kids liked. So I might have done stuff other people didn't think would work. But How many children's had, authors do you know are really going to come on the biggest rap podcast in Boston? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. You like, the, you like the format of in the podcast? In my next life, I'll be a songwriter. He loves the Beach Boys. That's right. Is it Brian Wilson? That's his name? Yeah. That's real music. Dolores <laughs> O'Riordan, that's real music. That's right. Uh, so, ind- so you think there's now opportunity, there's independent opportunity for ar- for authors still? Yes. The market's not oversaturated? Well, it's different than when I started. I mean, can you imagine there was no children's books in the New England Aquarium? I mean, ma- it's hard to imagine. Can you imagine there's no podcast in Boston? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> no, so, um, um, what were you saying? You don't think the market's oversaturated? And here's another well, one. Well, I think there's a million dinosaur books, a million, you know, so I would say that's probably oversaturated. But, I, uh, and I would say don't make any subjects, books about creatures or animals. <laughs> other subjects <laughs> probably aren't oversaturated. Yeah. You know, our really creative stories probably isn't oversaturated. Our new characters, we need new characters. I wouldn't say they're oversaturated, but you know, some subjects are. That's what I would think. You know. Have you have you started to notice at any point, given that you're like a gatekeeper and a lot of this stuff, that other there's there's shifts in the market because of the books you're producing? Like you you start seeing. I more. can tell you this: that when I started writing alphabet books. All of a sudden, the whole country was writing out. Hey, that's, that's my true. guy. It's true. That's my guy. At first, I was kind of mad, but, you know, I I was even forwarded emails uh, clandestinely from people saying, hey, Jared, look at this. You know, some publisher that said, we want you guys to read Jerry's books and imitate them. Like one publisher editor was telling someone else. The, the, and people would send me the email, say, look what they're doing. Yeah, that happened. I want to make sure I'm not, I, I don't dip into too much of uh, the politics and stuff, obviously, because it's a weird situation, everything that's going on, but th- authors are competitive. Yeah? Yeah, I guess. And I it, used to think we were competitive, but I don't think that anymore. I think everyone's so different, creatively different, that we don't really compete with each other. But it's about it's about I mean, demanding the attention of children, correct? I don't feel like I'm competing with another publisher, another author. You know, you're really kid's favorite author, though. You know, yeah. You don't think like other authors want to be in the position you're in? Um, sure. I if I wasn't selling millions of books, I'd want to be selling millions of books. You know, I was in that position. I was in that position for years, Mm -hmm. where I mean. I remember being at a conference and I had three people in line and the guy next to me had 400 in line. I mean, that happened to me a lot. Conferences is a great place to I'm, sell. I'm at a conference well. with, you know, say 800 teachers and this guy is 400 in line 
signing books, and I have three. That happened a lot, stuff like that. When was that? In the last 20 years, you know? And, uh, you know, some of that's been reversed. You know, like, I would have a big line, and they wouldn't, other, the new authors wouldn't, you know? So it, it wasn't always, uh, you know, it wasn't always easy, mm-hmm. you know? I was working my brains out, really. You still do, though, man, you yeah. know? Well, it's joyful work, you know. Hanging with kids, getting them to read, talking to kids—it's joyful work, really. Talking to teachers, you know, when you go into a school, it's a different environment than being in the real world. It's like happy and nice, and people (laughs) positive, positive and upbeat, and you know, looking to the future. At least that's what I think. Mm -hmm. You know. Do you, do you feel a, a strange obligation sometimes when you write books? Like, I have to make sure I'm very, like, transparent because, like, these are very, like, sensitive minds that are absorbing the information. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you have to write a book. Like, you I ha- think I have your product to... has to be, like, honest and has to be good because right. your market is, like, people with very yes. sensitive minds that absolve information differently. Well, I'm using nonfiction, so. That's easy. Yeah. But maybe too much nonfiction isn't that good. Like, do you really want to tell a kid that wolverines rip the eyeballs out of the animals they catch? Like, <laughs> it's great, though. <laughs> it's true. You know? And, and how, about, how about the video? I had a teacher say to me she didn't believe that a killer whale would eat a seal. I'm like, what can I do with her? She's... <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, I know. bleeding. Half everywhere of them eat nasty. seals; the other half eat fish. You know, bleeding everywhere. Gross. Yeah. What, okay, that's why. That's one last one of the last things we'll hit on is Jerry also does psychotic research. Like he knows every animal out there. He does. I would. Tell What's the most powerful animal? What's the most powerful animal? The most powerful. If you can match up all the animals in a massive fight, who's taking the W? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Well, the uh, the orca, the killer whale, is the smartest of them all. He would take them all. Where do you? He's in the how ocean. do you know that information? He's in the ocean, so he can't he can't fight on land. Um, but so the killer whale is wiping ocean, out everyone in the ocean. I would say the killer whale is absolutely the apex predator. Well, he's the, he is the the greatest. What about you, the megalodon you know shark? <laughs> he's dead. We don't know that. <laughs> Probably in Antarctica um, somewhere. He's right? extinct. Um, what did a whale researcher once tell me? That orca is the greatest predator God ever created. Probably the truth, though, right? Um, on they're, land, they're uh, fast. on land, I'll have to think. On land, I'll have to think. Tiger, you know, you know venom kind of evens the playing field for everyone. What do you mean? It's venomous snakes. <laughs> True. <laughs> you don't think a tiger could wear just wear a shot from a rattlesnake? No. You don't think so? You think it would cripple a, a snake? I mean, a, a tiger? Two steps dead. No way. Yeah. So if you were in a fight, who would you who would you want to face of all the predators? <laughs> who would you be most scared if one started to square up on you? Um, who would I be? Probably. Um, I'm gonna actually cut this up as a clip for the Instagram. If there was one animal, you're totally alone in the wild. Who are you nervous is gonna totally sick you wait let me ask him one more time i want to make sure yeah. i'm very transparent you're alone in the wild right yeah 
you're actually you're in a, a stadium coliseum dome and everyone's watching. Yeah. It's just Jerry alone. Yeah. They release an animal from a cage. So you got to fight that thing to the death. Who who yeah. are, who do you not want to face? Um well, a blue ringed octopus. No, it's on only, land. It's on land. A blue ringed octopus which is as big as your hand has the most potent venom in the ocean. Where are they? They better in not Australia. be down the cape. They're in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then, um, let's see, an inland taipan in Australia, the snake, the inland taipan, they call him a two-step snake. You get bit, you walk two steps, and you're dead. Wow. All right. Do they ever attack humans? I guess if you stepped on him, he wouldn't be too happy if it could happen. But where where is that? Australia. Okay. Australia's a different world. There's two for Australia. (laughs) Um, Kangaroos can throw fists. I'm trying to think. Uh, I was in Africa for three weeks, and everyone fears the hippo. Why? It's huge. I think he's, they think he's a nice, playful little guy, but he's. Jaws are massive. He has a mean bite. Yeah. The crocs are afraid of him. Crocodiles. They're afraid of the hippo, yeah. Can you also talk about the distinction that crocodiles are far more dominant than alligators, right? Not even close. I don't know. I don't know. They're way bigger. They're way bigger. A saltwater croc is the biggest croc. Yeah. They're like dinosaurs, crocodiles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're lightning fast when they strike. They're like, if you were walking along the beach. Oh, how about that video with the tiger and the, the alligator? Yeah. That's the craziest video. There's this video online. I think everyone should go search it. This tiger's like stalking through this creek. And this alligator's completely defenseless. And this it's a jaguar. Oh, jaguar. Jaguar, the greatest hunter on earth. Yeah. Oh, so so back to the call. <coughs> Who would the... I not want to fight? A tiger, I guess. They're really intelligent. That's the most boring answer ever. Tiger. No one wants to fight a tiger. They're really intelligent. And quick. A guy at the zoo told me that the lion is the dumbest animal at the zoo, and the tiger and the elephant are the smartest. The male animal. lion. Females, different brain complex. It's the truth. Yeah. Did, did I ever tell you how I saw uh, an attack when I went to Africa? Yeah, I saw her kill myself. I saw a lion take down a uh, wildebeest. I saw a zebra. This is the saddest shit I've ever seen. I know. It's terrible. (laughs) It's awful. awful. Yeah. Did you know I got on my knees and I prayed inside the Wrangler? Yeah. I said, said, please, God, let me see an attack. Because we saw them stalking. We saw them walking along the path, stalking slow. We saw this huge group of zebras over here, all the lions coming. It's all female lions. Yeah. And it was the saddest, most devastating thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Because they single one out of a pack of 100. Yeah. Wow. All right. All right, you don't like tiger as an answer. Okay, let me ask the question again because I'm going to cut this up as a, a clip. A mosquito with malaria. How about okay. that? <laughs> You're sick. That's no, the... I do not want to get bit by a mosquito with malaria. Why? Or the Ebola virus. I don't want to get bit uh, by Oh, now you're getting tricky with it, man. Yeah, okay. All right, I'm going to ask the question one more time. What? So I can cut up as a clip, and it's easy for me to cut. It's Boach Bonnie is in the, the Coliseum. We're looking down. Jerry is on the base floor. Yeah. My staff has a cage, and there's a curtain. And we're about to open up the curtain, and you have to face what's ever in there. Yeah. Who are you least confident in the wild that you can take on? 
A tiger. He's oh. enormous. Oh, my God. He's enormous. He weighs 500 pounds. I weigh 200. But what Komodo dragon? I would say he's. I could outrun him. No, he's pretty fast, right? I could outrun him. What I about, could outfake him. What about a cheetah? A what about a cheetah? A cheetah can run three times as fast as me. So you're taking. But he's not that big, though. He's not that big. Yeah, but you think a cheetah would be more. You think it's che- not that big? Tigers would have huge. a chance. You ever seen Mike Tyson with his tigers? No, but it's got to be fun. <laughs> They're huge, yeah. and they love him. Yeah. Okay, so listen. Uh, you know uh, what's funny? You're like the kids I see in schools. Me? They ask me stuff like that. Oh, yeah, it's Would awesome. Would you fight a tiger? Would you fight a killer whale? Okay. The kids ask me all that stuff. So who, who are you most confident you could take on? Like of any big predator? A big predator? What about a grizzly bear? You don't think a grizzly bear would body you? Grizzly's just supposed to lie down and not look at him. Be very still? You don't run. Suppose he's supposed to lie down and not look at him. I, I have to show you uh, this video when we're done. I told you about Wolverines. What, what, no, what's they wrong? They claw your face. <laughs> he loves this stuff. It's like, I don't it's... love it. It's truth. What, so what's a honey badger? What's the advantage of a honey badger over a Wolverine? I think a wolverine is bigger. You know? Honey badger has thicker skin. Um, That'd be a great fight. I'm mad I didn't do that. What? I didn't do that in a book. Wolverine, honey badger? Yeah, that'd be a great book. I did do wolverine, Tasmanian devil, and I did do honey badger, hyena. Where is Tasmania? Is that off Australia too? Yeah. It's a different world out there. Yeah. Craziest snakes. Um, one last science question. Yes. Who wins a fight? I mean, this is like fast. I never asked you this. Who wins a fight? A fully formed golden deer, right? Yeah. Fully formed? Yeah. Or a coyote? I think the deer wins. The big buck? How does it do? It kicks It kicks the hyena. First of all, you can outrun him. Twice as fast, but coyotes have like teeth. Teeth. Deers have like coyotes. A little scrawny things. Or right, what about a wolf? The little. What about a wolf? Lone wolf. I'm not sure how good they are alone. They're good in packs. Not sure. They're weak huh? mentally. They're weak mentally. Is that what you think? Well, deers travel alone. Okay, so listen. How was this fun? Yep, it was uh, good talk. I had a, I had a I great hope, time. I think the teachers and kids would like it. I do too, and I think didn't I do a good job of making sure I said a couple of swears, but not that many. I don't think you said any swears. I hope I sat good with good posture. You did great. My tie straight, my hair's combed. I, do you get how podcast works now, though? What? You get how podcast works? Yeah. Simple, right? That's nice. Also, for anybody that's tuning in, Jerry is another person I know that fully stuck to his own creative vision. And was very consistent and then reaps tons of fruits of your labor. If that's how you say it. Don't want to sound inappropriate. But yeah. Like a rapper. Like an artist. Like anybody. It's the same shit. Same nothing. But hey, thank you for coming. Hey. Corporate. Say hi to everybody. (laughs) 
See you at your house later. All right, so listen, this is how we, we start and end this, okay? You say, hi, my name, and this is my golden hour. Directly after, no, no, directly after no break. Hi, my name, and that was my golden hour. Hi, my name is Jerry Pilata, and this is my golden hour. Hi, my name is J- Jerry Pilata. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me on my golden hour. <laughs> nope, blew it. Try again. Hi, my name, and this is my golden hour. Then hi, my name, and that was my golden hour. I would say I'm hi. children's author. I would say I'm children's author, Jerry Pilata. Hi, I'm children's author, Jerry Pilata. And this is my golden hour. Big J. Hi, my name is Jerry Pilata, and that was my golden hour.